Well, thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, as the kids head out, I do... I did ask uh, Luke, who's up at Shamanah, who we just prayed for, to send some pictures. And so some of his volunteers sent some pictures of the students at Shamanah. So there they are uh, playing broomball. Um, but we had 20 students uh, and four leaders who have been up at Shamanah this weekend. They're continuing to be up there. So please keep them in your prayers uh, as they are wrapping up at Shamanah today and then driving back home sometime this, this afternoon evening. So... Um, good group up there, and, and we're, we're grateful for Shamanah and that ministry and the four volunteers who gave up their weekend to be up there with them. As a, as a former youth pastor, I remember how long those weekends could feel sometimes, <laughs> and uh, I loved them. I, I, at some level, miss them, and, uh, but I know that especially coming back on Monday, Monday hits hard when you've been spending all weekend uh, up there. So we are, we are grateful for them. And we are going to get started. Uh, we're talking the significance of silence this morning. This is wrapping up the Where Are We Going series. Next week, we start in Hebrews. Uh, we're going to be in Hebrews kind of all the way up through Palm Sunday. So if you want to get your own uh, Bible reading schedule in line with where we're going, um, that's where we're going. Uh, so I would encourage you to do that. We'll be starting that, that next week. But we're talking the significance of silence, and it's a little bit of a different take on what silence means, uh, meaning we're going to be looking at the early church. We're going to look at Acts 15 and look at where they chose as a church to be silent, where they as a church said, you know what, this is not something we're going to fight about. We're going to keep silent on it. And it reminded me, a couple of years ago, I went on a solitude retreat, um, and, and I was looking for a, a place to go to do a, a time of solitude and silence. And I, I've done those on my own before and kind of struggled just being by myself. Like, I need some guidance, some direction. I'm, I'm, I'm a raging extrovert, and so having nobody around, um, I tend to focus too much on the fact that there's nobody around and not on what I'm supposed to be doing. And so I was looking for a place to go, and I found this, this retreat center that advertised a solitude retreat, silent retreat. I thought, okay, this will be great. And so I show up and, and I get there and, and you get assigned seating at the dinner table. So you're always sitting with the same person. So I thought, okay, I'll go out and do my silent thing and then I'll come in for dinner and I'll get to, get to know this guy and we'll, we'll get to talk. And, and, uh, and then they said, and, and by the way, you know, first meal. And they're like, hey, by the way, um, we don't talk at meals even on this retreat. We're, we're silent for the entire 36 hours, 48 hours you're here, whatever it was. We're entirely, except for one hour in the afternoon. We give you one hour of rec time uh, where you can uh, t talk and interact with others. I thought, okay, I can do this. I have my hour of rec time. And I know nobody, and I'm sitting across the table from, from this gentleman, and, and uh, he leans over, and, and, and kind of the last thing he said to me the whole weekend was, just to be clear, during rec time, I also keep silent. <laughs> and he went back to his meal, and I just thought, I am dead. I am going to die. And, um, and it was a really good thing. It was a really good thing. So I'd encourage you, if you struggle with silence, if you struggle with being by yourself, push into it. Push into it. But we're going to look a little bit different. We're going to look a little bit different at silence this morning, looking at the early church, because how the church navigates change is significant. How the early church navigated change and where they chose as a church to go, this is something we are going to keep silent on, 
is, is significant because we've been talking through this series about the free church kind of distinctive that in, uh, and I want to say it correctly here, in essentials unity, in non-essentials charity, and in all things Jesus Christ. And two weeks ago, we talked about in essentials unity, that part. This week, we're really looking at that non-essentials. In non-essentials charity, but both weeks have also had this focus of in all things Jesus Christ. As we're unified we need to have Jesus Christ as our unity. In the spaces we disagree, we need to have Jesus Christ as the thing that binds us together. And so we'll be looking at that. And we're gonna look at Acts 15. Acts chapter 15 is, is a significant moment in the early church history because the early church is navigating this significant change. Jesus Christ had come to earth. He had, he had lived as a man. He had, he had died on the cross. He had been resurrected. And he had ascended into heaven. And now the disciples, now apostles, look at each other and go, well, now what? And, and the gospel begins to go out, outside of Israel, outside of Jerusalem, out into the Gentile, non-Jewish world. And they're seeing things change. They're seeing things that are different. They're seeing things that make them uncomfortable in some ways, and they're, they're coming back and going, what do we do here? How do we navigate these things? Where are the times where we speak up and say, no, this is essential, and where are the times that we keep to silence, that we say, this is not a deal breaker? And any relationship uh, takes work. We cannot expect in, in, in my marriage, I can't expect to never have a disagreement with my wife. Like I said, I'm the raging extrovert. She is not. There are going to be times where we don't see eye to eye on things. And those relationships take work both in marriage and outside of marriage. Our friend relationships, our coworker relationships, and especially inside the church. These relationships as a church, as a community, are going to take work. We can't expect them to happen naturally. And so, so with that, we need to be mindful and not get bogged down in what Paul warns us about in Titus 3.9, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. And Satan is at work. In any relationship that is pursuing the Lord, Satan is at work to try and bog us down and distract us and derail us and get us bogged down in useless quarrels and controversies. Things that are unprofitable and useless. And so that intentionality in any relationship, including in the church, requires perspective. To be intentional requires us to have some level of perspective. And, and if you can go way back in time before we all had GPS in our pockets, and you go way back in time even really before we had quality maps, and you, you picture these people, you know, whether they're, they're crossing the continent um, you know, on foot or Lewis and Clark on their expedition, they needed to get a survey. They needed to get a lay of the land so that they could more intentionally walk through it. And what would they do? They would go up and they would find a high point to look out, to look out over top of the country they're about to enter and get some idea of where they should go. It wasn't perfect, but they'd get up there. And so this morning, I have five lookouts that as we walk through disagreements, as we walk through change as a congregation, as you walk through disagreements and change in any relationship you face, these are five lookouts we can see in scripture that help us to get a lay of the land, that help us do so with intentionality and love and charity in the non-essentials. And our first lookout is look to disagree well. 
look to disagree well. Disagreements will happen. And I think I don't need to really tell anybody that. I think you all understand. We've all been in relationships with our friends, with our family, with a significant other enough to know that disagreements happen. You know, we, we would like to think that we'll get to a point with, our, with any relationship where we'll just be fine. But it never works that way. Disagreements happen, and so we need to be intentional and look to disagree well. Uh, for Merv and I, one of the ways that we had to learn this, and I'll just back up, when I was in college, uh, I went to community college in Brainerd for one year and lived with my parents, and um, I needed a job. Uh, during community college, and so I was considering church ministry, so I thought a natural spot for me to look for a job is in a church, and so I went to my parents' church, and they were looking for a custodial staff person to help. I thought, perfect, this will get me in the church, get me some experience. It's a job, it pays the bills, this will be good. I am an incompetent cleaner. <laughs> I'm, I'm terrible. I, I got, it's the only... It is the first job I was ever fired from because I literally didn't see things. I remember the, the pastor who was my supervisor walking me around and being like, Bruce, do you not see this here? There's dirt. And I'd go, oh yeah, no, I didn't see that. And then he took me in another room and he's like, do you not see the garbage on the shelf? Oh, I thought they wanted that there. Oh yeah, mm. totally missed it. And, and, I've, and I've always been that way. And, I, and when Merv and I first got married, I was the same way at home. I didn't see things. The, the pile of dishes in the sink, like cognitively I knew it was there, but I went, yeah, why? why? What do you expect? She expected me to clean it. And I'm not very good at that. It took us a while to navigate that. I'm not doing that to be a jerk. I don't see it. I took a, I took a personality survey. Appreciation of beauty and excellence is my lowest personality trait. It's, it's way down there at the bottom. And so we had to learn to disagree well, to work through this. And as we look at Acts 15, we're gonna see how they disagreed well. And we're gonna start with the first two verses. Acts 15, one and two. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So we're going to take a sidebar there real quick and step aside and go, notice the disagreement. And it's a sharp disagreement. It's a real one. It's a, it's a, it's a big deal. They're willing to disagree over this, and they have their opinions. Um, but they're being intentional. And we can look at this with the, with the lens of history and go, yeah, it's about custom. Obviously, Paul and Barnabas are right. This is about custom. You know, and especially we in the, in the um, Protestant post-Martin post Luther world, we have a strong view about custom in the church and what role it plays or doesn't play in, in salvation. But understand we have that view because of this conversation. This, this was new then. This was a new thought. So don't read it with this lens of history where we go, well, obviously Paul and Barnabas were right. It wasn't as obvious then. Sure, they'd had some conversations earlier in Acts about this, but also note that the custom they're referring to is from their Bible, Leviticus 12. So this is not just a tradition versus a new idea conversation. It is deeper than that. And they will need to learn to, to 
to disagree well. And the debate in Jerusalem revolved around the issue of how the Gentiles were to be accepted into Christian fellowship. Did they have to become Jewish first? In custom, in, in, in everything else. And as, as one uh, theologian put it, for all intents and purposes, a Gentile proselyte to Judaism became a Jew, not only in re- religious conviction, but in lifestyle as well. So there was this expectation prior to Jesus that if you wanted to become a follower of God, you had to become a Jew, not only in religious conviction, but in lifestyle and culture as well. You had to completely change. So this is the root of the debate they're having. Is that still a true thing? And so as we continue to read in the New Testament, we'll see Paul get more and more um, vocal and, 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 and abrupt about this conversation? Hey, no, it is not through circumcision. It is not through the law. It is not through the festivals. It is not through all these things. But this is a new thought going on. And it hadn't really been clarified. So while they had a sharp disagreement and sharp opinions, they are still disagreeing well. So notice that disagreeing doesn't mean we can't have opinions or strong opinions. And it doesn't mean we can't hold to our opinions. But look at how they disagree well. Okay, sidebar over, moving on. Verse three, the church sent them on their way and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them, brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. And he's referring to Acts 11. So that happened already with Cornelius. That's what Peter is referring to. God who knows the heart showed that he had accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. So again, look at their their disagreement. It is significant. This is a big deal. But also notice how much intentionality they had in it. They didn't just fly off the handle. They didn't just yell and shout at each other. They had a sharp disagreement but also notice that both of their groups had their heart in the right place. When he, when he says, hey, this is what God is doing, they all celebrated that God was doing. This was not an effort to exclude a group. It was an effort to see how do we bring as many people into the gospel as well as we can. So they saw the heart. And yes, they disagreed, and sharply, but they had intentionality. In verse two, Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. They took some time, they paused, they said, okay, clearly this is a big deal. Clearly we have, we have division over it. We have differing opinions. We need to take some time. Verse six, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. Verse seven, after much discussion, see the intentionality. As we disagree in relationships, we need to disagree well. We need to hear each other's hearts, not just our words. We need to see and understand why people have a disagreement with us around these issues, not just shut them down because we have the better option. 
Be intentional in our disagreements. Listen to those of a different opinion and hear not just their words, but their hearts. And so the story continues. And as it does, Peter, uh, speaking for the entire council, unpacks how they, are t- how they came to this decision, right? So Peter stands up and he addresses them. And so we're going to back up a little bit to see lookout number two. We're going to reread a section because lookout number two is look for where God is moving. Look for where God is moving. That's what they do. And they back up and they say, okay, where is God at work here? As we're in the middle of this disagreement, we gotta step back sometimes and go, where is God moving? What's the new thing that might be happening and is God in it? And so, like I said, Peter had already addressed this, not only in Acts 11, but, but earlier in the passage we already read. So we're gonna back up a couple verses and, and, and start again at verse eight. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. This is, this is where they start. They start by looking at what God has done. Where is God at work? Where is God moving? Where do we see the spirit moving in a new way and how do we get around it? Not get around it as in, you know, around it, but how do we get behind it? How do we come around it and support the, the work of the Lord that is at is, that, is, is in process. And they're looking for the fruit of the Spirit. They're looking for the Spirit of God. When we see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control happening, we should take note. We should look for where God is moving. Look for where the Lord is at work. And again, it's easy for us to see ourselves through history on the right side of this conversation because most people in this room, I would, I would guess, are Gentiles, are not Jewish. Some of you might be, but most of us probably are not. I'm not. I came to faith because of this conversation. Because people were willing to stand up and say, hey, hang on, God is working and doing something here. Let's not put a yoke on them that we ourselves could not bear. So two people are looking at this and they say, hey, we see this as a yoke, a burden, a challenge to overcome that we couldn't bear. Why would we have them try when God is already at work? A yoke that we were unable to bear. And so what yoke are we putting on people? To join our community, to join our church, to join the people of God, to be a Christian, you you have to bear this yoke of, of religiosity or you have to bear this yoke of behavior or this yoke of politics or this yoke of affluence or this yoke of, of whatever. What are the yokes we're putting on people that saying, hey, before you can belong, you have to become. You have to, you have to look like me, you have to act like me. I, I'm putting this yoke on you. And they step back and said, no, look for where God is moving. Look for what God is doing and get behind it. The next lookout is to look to scripture. And I think it's really significant that they first looked to where God was working and then looked to scripture. 
They looked and saw God at work and then looked to scripture to guide them. The Evangelical Free Church of America recently had a blog post titled, Healthy Churches Stand on the Authority of Scripture. And this quote from the article stood out to me. When scripture is primarily experienced as proof texts to support views in political and cultural battles, it will not be seen as the transcendent and authoritative word of God, but as a political playbook. These entanglements diminish people's view of scripture and of God. I think sometimes we get it backwards. We see God at move and we, 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 we look to the Bible and go, how is that wrong? Or we see somebody else doing something in worship or in church or in ministry that makes us uncomfortable and we go, how can I prove that that's wrong? And they looked and said, where is God moving? And then said, where does scripture support that? Our scriptures must be our authority, but we must not look to the Bible to simply support our own view. For the believers at the Jerusalem Council, they could have on both sides argued scripture. Both sides had Bible verses they could point to, and Peter kind of says, hey, this is a yoke that we're putting on them that we couldn't bear because they were looking back at their past and saying, we had all these rules, we had this covenant that said you had to do these things, and we didn't do it. That's what sent us into exile as Israel. That's what, that's what sent us down a Pharisaic track of, of making rules upon rules upon rules. They could both look to Scripture. And look at how Peter addresses Scripture in Acts 15. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. So they didn't ignore scripture, but they did look and say, where's God it moving and is it in line with scripture? And instead of looking at the Bible as something that they used to hold up their existing opinion, they said, where, where does this work? How do we make this as easy as we can for new people to come in? And they looked to scripture to guide them, and they looked not just to the letter of the law, but to the intent of the law. And they looked to the teachings of Jesus Christ, and they looked to the actions of Jesus Christ when he was on earth. Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And Matthew 15, one through seven, then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They do not wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition, you hypocrites. That's a hard teaching to hear because we value tradition the way we experienced it, the way we saw it, the way we felt it. And oftentimes our intentions are good. I want my kids to experience the same things I did because I have a vibrant faith because of the things I experienced. But are we open to new things? Are we open to God doing a new work? Are we willing to look at the intent of the law rather than just the letter of the law? And we could also talk about how Jesus physically responded 
to people. Not only do his words, but his actions are in line with what the apostles are teaching here in Acts 15. We can look to his actions with the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, his interaction with the Samaritan woman in John 4, and his conversation with the Roman centurion in Matthew 8. So they were looking at more than just the the verses that supported one side. They were going, what do we see Jesus doing here? And how do the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the Bible come in line with this? So we need to look to Scripture. But do we see Scripture as a battering ram to push others to our view, or are we in seeking the intent of God? The heart of the Scripture is for the lost and those far from God. Is that how we see it? Or is it a battering ram to make people agree with us? Look to Scripture. Our next lookout is look for ways to tear down barriers. This is what they're doing. They're trying to tear down barriers that are keeping people from encountering God. How do we tear down those barriers? Because this is what it's all about. For the council and for us, the goal is to bring new people in, to bring new people to an encounter with God, and we want to make that road as easy as possible. Look at their conclusion, Acts 15, 19 through 21. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. And this is the crux of the story, and this is what's so crazy to me. What they limited it to What they chose to be silent on was huge. Festivals, circumcision, whether or not you eat shellfish, silent. They don't have an opinion. They go, look, we're gonna gonna continue to live this way as as Jewish people, we're gonna continue to live this out, but you're not, and therefore we're not gonna hold you to this. And they're silent. And And I just wonder what that would look like today. And, and, and just picture in your mind, right, that we, we get together and we realize that there's something that this church holds very dear, and I'm not, I'm not doing anything here, I'm just a thought experiment, and, and, and there's something this church holds very dear, and, and we realize that is the thing keeping new people from coming to Jesus. That's a big deal. And they sit there and go, you know what? Holy festivals, don't have to do it. Circumcision, don't have to do it. Pork, bacon, go ahead and eat it. Shellfish, go ahead. We're throwing all that away. We're gonna limit it to these three things. These four things. Everything else they're silent on. And so we need to choose to keep silent on issues which cause division because division pushes people away. Romans 16, 17, and 18, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teachings you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. So for us at Watertown, this is where we need to have charity. If somebody comes in and, and, and they're, they're they're doing something new and different and it challenges us, but we don't really see it out of the bounds of scripture. We need to have charity. And charity means sometimes choosing to be silent on it. Choosing to to not go there. Are there essentials we're gonna defend? Absolutely. 
who Jesus Christ is and how you become a believer 100%. Are we going to look to our statement of faith and our core beliefs? Absolutely, but even, even our statement of faith has changed over the years. We've tweaked it, we've changed it, we've altered it. The free church recently took premillennial out of their statement of faith to say, you know what, that's something we should be silent on instead. We're not gonna divide over it. So we cannot hold up a statement of faith above scripture. But we will not cast somebody out. And even more, we will not treat somebody as less than. One of my favorite quotes um, by one of the free church um, Fathers, years and years ago, said this, there's another fact which must not be overlooked. There can be no second-class members in a free church congregation. Those who hold one view should not look down upon those who hold another. And he said that right after saying, if somebody comes in and says, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior, we say, welcome, brother, welcome, sister. And we cannot treat somebody as a second-class citizen if they follow Jesus And so I'm not asking us as a church to ignore disagreements, to pretend we don't have views, to not have conversations about them. We need to, but we need to know where they belong. And we need to know there are gonna be times where we need to be silent and go, you know what, I I I could push this, I could argue this, I could defend this, but that division is only going to cause people to go away. And so I need to find the appropriate time to have it and choose to be silent elsewhere. And our last look out is to look for more disagreements. Because Satan is at work and Satan is gonna keep bringing things up and if we, if we navigate one thing well, we can bet there's another thing coming. And we see it in scripture too because they have this counsel and we're gonna skip over a few verses and you should read them because it's the letter they write and they send it off to the other churches. And so Paul and Barnabas go back to their church bringing the letter, hey, good news, you don't have to become Jewish to be a follower of Jesus. You can, you can follow Jesus as a Gentile. And then verses 36 through 41, and I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but I'm gonna read 39 and 40. Paul and Barnabas return after the council bearing the news of this freedom and soon after have another disagreement. And this time it's with each other. And the Bible says they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. So look for the next disagreement. Look for what's next. Because if we navigate one, you can bet there's another one coming. And Paul and Barnabas later will be reconciled. They will come back. They're gonna, again, have a sharp disagreement, but even in that, they stay in communication. And they reconcile. And the disagreement they have is whether or not John Mark should should go because he had bailed on him before. And Paul is frustrated with him and says, no, he shouldn't go. And Barnabas says, I think we should give him another chance. And that's the root of the disagreement. And later in Paul's letters, we will write, we will read Paul asking for John Mark and asking for Barnabas, his brothers in Christ. So look for the next disagreement. We can disagree. That doesn't mean we aren't unified. We don't need to all look the same or think the same to be one in Christ. And we need to learn when to be silent. So how about you? How about me? What do I need to set down? What do you need to set down? What do we need to choose to be silent on? To look across the table at somebody and go, you know what? That's not a big enough deal. I'm gonna choose to keep to silence. That's our goal. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for how you've been at work here at Watertown, 
here at, uh, in our community, God, here in Minnesota. And Lord, we look for you to move again. And Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom to navigate those disagreements and those challenges well. Lord, to look to you and where you're moving, to look to scripture. Um, God, to look to where we need to be silent. And God, then to look to disagree again and to stay in relationship. God, to stay in community with each other. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we'll end this morning with this from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Have a great week.